Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Dude. How do you do? It's Album Nerds Podcast time. I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me to talk about albums. So, Andy, how you doing, my friend? Yo, yo, buddy. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I don't know yet. I'll let you know after we get through these uh, three magnificent records. Don, how about you? Uh, I'm good. I don't know. It smells... It smells like teen spirit in here. Uh, getting a whiff of that, too. <laughs> Why? What did you have for dinner last night? <laughs> All right, so we are the Album Nerds, and we're uh, doing a podcast. We're talking about three albums. We're answering a question. We're spinning the wheel of musical destiny to find out what kind of albums we'll talk about next time. But this week, we're talking about albums with kick-ass opening and closing tracks. That's what I'm talking about! Yeah, so as Dude said, uh, we're each going to discuss an album that has both a, a strong opening and a strong closing song. Now, there is some gray area, you know, when it comes to, to like, hidden tracks and things like that. Um, but I think we, you know, we all used our, our best judgment uh, on that. When this came up, I wasn't sure if it meant anything at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, well, doesn't every great album have a great opening and closing track? But... I don't know that they do. I mean, there were plenty I came across that did. Uh, Toxicity by System of a Down, for instance. But then there, there are albums where the closing might be, you love it, but the closing is disappointing. Maybe just because the album's over, maybe because it seems like a throwaway. So it took a little more effort than I thought it would. How about you guys? Yeah, I feel like the closer, sometimes the climax of the record comes before the closing of the record. And so... Oftentimes that closer is anticlimactic, but I think we did find some stuff today that bucks that trend. A couple of things I was considering, uh, Tools Enema has a really, kind of has a strong closer, then also has like a really long <laughs> like <laughs> instrumental passage at the end, which kind of drags right. things out. So I kind of like backed away from that a little bit. I'm sure we'll come back to that. And the other one I was considering was uh, Pixies Doolittle, which does have a really strong opening and closing, but that's just pretty strong all the way through. So, but I'm sure we'll get to that down the road. Uh, opening and closing tracks have always been uh, important to me. I, I think generally my favorite albums, it's often either the first song or the last song that's, that's my favorite track. I, I think with, with concept albums, I think they're extremely important because, you know, the opener sort of sets the tone for the rest of the album. And then the closer, uh, as, as Andy said, it's either the climax or sometimes the closing track is more like an epilogue and the climax comes in the, the previous song. One of the best examples, I think, would be, you know, The Dark Side of the Moon, which we which we already covered and is in the, the album Nerds Hall of Fame. Uh, but that ending, you know, the, the brain damage and eclipse thing. I think that's a perfect example of, uh, of, of the climax. It, you know, it did bring up some, you know, some issues, like, like a track, uh, an album like Abbey Road, right? Which technically ends with, uh, that Her Majesty, which is sort of like a, a hidden track, you know, so that it was debatable, you know, what's actually the last song on Abbey Road? Uh, and it's even more confusing because the whole second side is a medley, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? It's a mix of tracks anyway. That would be the, the track then. So then you just, uh, yeah. <laughs> call it one. <laughs> All right, so yeah, we've got some great albums. I'm going last, but arguably best. Uh, <laughs> we can <laughs> throw that out there already, huh? <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll 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 tease it as we go. But uh, I noticed we... you're, you're wearing flannel today. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> hmm. Scratch, scratch, scratch. 
Nice. I'm scratching my head, by the way. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. You choo-choo-choose me? My pick for an album with a, a strong opener uh, and closer is The Grateful Dead's American Beauty. Uh, this was released in November 1970. Uh, it's their it's their fifth studio album. Grateful Dead were formed in uh, Palo Alto, California in 1965. The lineup for this album uh, was, of course, Jerry Garcia, who plays uh, guitar and pedal steel and piano uh, and vocals uh, on this album. Bob Weir, guitars and vocals. Phil Lesh, you know, bass guitar. Ron McKernan, uh, also known as Pigpen, does harmonica and piano. Grateful Dead have two drummers. You've got Mickey Hart and Bill Krutzman. Uh, and you also have a lyricist who actually doesn't perform. Uh, Robert Hunter, which I, I've always found interesting. The first track of the album uh, is a song called Box of Rain. Any morning, any evening, any day. So that song was written by uh, Phil Lesh and uh, Robert Hunter. Supposedly, the, the lyrics refer to the, the passing uh, of uh, Phil Lesh's father. I always really enjoyed that track. And actually, when, you know, when my father passed away, I remember listening to the track a lot. And, uh, you know, I sort of, you know, really got it uh, at that point. The, the three words I, I chose to describe the album are not just a jam. Or no, I'm sorry, more than a jam. There we go. That's what it was. Um, so you know, <laughs> nice. I tend to think of the Grateful Dead as as a live act that just go on, to, you know, endless instrumental jams. Uh, but I think this album really demonstrates their their songwriting. They really figured out how to how to work in the in the studio. But anyway, what'd you guys think of uh, American Beauty? Well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head for what you're just saying in terms of my perspective on this. Uh, my three words are: Dead is live. Kind of for that same reason, like. That's always what I think of as being like kind of like their special superhero powers, their, you know, their live jam sessions. But this record is really focused on just the quality of their songwriting and they sound comfortable in the studio. The recording sounds great. These are some like all time classic folk rock songs. Um, so I think like, especially if you're new to the dead, this is a probably a really good spot to start because you're going to hear a lot of these songs played in their, their more famous uh, concert performances. And they're, they're awesome, man. With the exception of a couple, which I think maybe are not quite as up to snuff as, as the others, but there's some really great ones out here. <laughs> so it's hard to, hard to deny that. My three words to describe this album are stage jamming live. No, it's not because <laughs> I don't care about that part. That's the part of the dead I've always been like, meh, chill, <laughs> rootsy rock. I never got into the dead. I, Recently, I've enjoyed. I enjoy their albums. I do. Back in in my social circles as a as a young man, you couldn't just casually enjoy a Grateful Dead album. You either were in or you were out. <laughs> it's like a whole culture, essentially. And at that point, and they they were you know, Jerry was still alive, barely at that point. I think uh, I had a chance to go to see them on their final tour with him, and the the sales pitch from my friends was like. They've got nitrous balloons. And I'm like, <laughs> that's the reason? No, thanks. I'll pass. So I didn't go because the whole sales pitch was drugs and that wasn't my thing. So um, I really like this. I mean, my favorite, I, Working Man's Dead is probably my favorite album of theirs that I've spent any time with. I hadn't really focused on this one before and I thought the, the tracks were all strong. I really loved Jerry's voice in particular when he's doing 
the lead, which he does most of. Um, yeah, it's just so much more vibey and chill and nice because you move on to the next. I don't like a three-minute song turning into a 25-minute jam for me. I want to move on to the next. I'm an album guy. I'm an yeah. album nerd. That's why we're here, right? So <laughs> that's yep. that's my take on it. But I did, uh, I did, I thought the opening and closing were very strong as well. So it did, it fit the... It fit the theme. It is interesting with, uh, you know, the, the deadheads I knew, uh, growing up. It didn't seem like they were listening to these albums. They were always listening to bootlegs. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. They'd totally. even tell me, like, my friends would say, don't listen to the records. Listen, like, but that's what. That's how. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, anyway, well, let's uh, let's go to the the closing cut, which is uh, you know one of the probably best known dead songs. This is uh, Truckin'. Other times I can barely see. So that song, you know, supposedly kind of tells the the story of the band's uh, adventures uh, on the road. Lyrics uh, again by uh, Robert Hunter. Apparently, he has like a million verses to this song. Uh, you know, oh, that really? they, yeah, that they didn't uh, I, end I up bet. recording. Yeah. I'm fascinated. I didn't know that about a lyricist that doesn't perform. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. The only other one I could think of was the guy with uh, like Elton John. What's it? Bernie Taupin. Is Bernie it? Bernie Taupin. Yeah. yeah. I thought he was more the piano man, though. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Dude had mentioned uh, Working Men's Dead, uh, which was the album that came before this. Uh, and I really see these, those two albums, they kind of go together. You know, they had, they had moved away from the experimental psychedelic rock and were sort of embracing Americana and, you know, sort of country folk roots. Yeah, it was kind of like the pothead version of the Eagles. Yeah. To a certain degree, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the reason that I gravitated toward Working Man's Dead was because the first Dead song I ever heard was Casey Jones. And, like, just uh, someone was singing about high on cocaine and a train. I was what? like, this is like illegal Dr. Seuss. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> uh, okay, why don't we do a, a, another cut from the album? This one, this one falls in the middle. Uh, another one of their, their most known songs. Uh, this is Ripple. On the heart of strung, would you hear my voice? Very uh, pretty song. Uh, that one is a little different from the the rest of the album. There's a little little more space in it, and the I, I think the chords are you know much simpler. I, I wish I knew more about music theory, you know, because perhaps I could explain it. But the the Grateful Dead, you know, their songs just sound different to me for for some reason, you know. And I don't know if it's that they're deviating from like that traditional blues scale or, or something. But you know, often the the chord pr- progressions are are not what I expect. Uh, you know, a lot of the songs they're just uh, there's not a lot of space in them. You know, there's a lot of musicianship going on. And uh, this one stands out, I think, because there's, there's much more space in it. Yeah, another uh, thing that stands out about the, the record is the, the harmonies. Uh, apparently, the, the dead had been hanging out with uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, around that, that time period. And I, I think that those vocal harmonies, you know, definitely rubbed off on them. And it's a weird kind of harmony. You know, it's not your traditional sort of major chords. Uh, you know, there's a little dissonance to them. Yeah, very, uh, uh, very interesting and unique. Yeah, they rely on them quite a bit on this record. I think is to their benefit. The songs I disliked the most, or I felt the hardest time getting through, were the ones where they had like the isolated vocals, and where it's take a few. I won't mention any names, but a few band members always strike me as not being particularly strong vocalists. But I think uh, you know, for the most part, the guitar work 
overcomes those slight vocal shortcomings that they have. Well, I'm a uh, I'm a big fan of this this record, uh, and I would like to nominate it for the the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. Ain't half alert. Album Nerds Hall of Fame nomination incoming. You know, I mean, this is a an, an obvious pick for me. You know, I I think it's uh, again, it's an album with uh, you know a great opening cut, great closing cut, and uh, you know lots of lots of fun things uh, in in the middle. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to deny the quality of the songs here. There's so many just classics on here. Yeah, except there's ones that stink, right, Andy? There are. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think there's two stinkers. <laughs> Anyway, I, I would say yes. I still, I, other studio albums is probably the one I come back to the most. But you're missing out if you're not listening to the live shit. I'll just say that. But yes. Yeah, I, I agree with Andy. If you've got approximately 48 hours to kill straight through, then yeah, listen to <laughs> one of their concerts. Obviously, this is, this is in, this is a, it's a great album. It's kind of the album, I think, that most people think of. So yeah, it belongs in the Album Nerds Hall of Fame for sure. Okay, well, congratulations to the Grateful Dead and American Beauty. Oh, they're going to be thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions. And now it's time on the show when we ask ourselves a question. So uh, it's fall time here in America. Thanksgiving is upon us. What foods do you look forward to most and what's changed since you were a kid? Like the, I think those are differing opinions in your life, you know, your kid view and your adult view. What do you guys think? Yeah. How does change so much from kidhood to adulthood? For me, I mean, I'm pescatarian, so I don't really get down with the turkey. I don't think anybody really, does anybody really like turkey though? I feel like it's an obligatory meat. Yeah. Like I mean, turkey's, turkey's good. It isn't special though anymore you know i yeah but yeah it's fine i prefer chicken <laughs> chicken's way better <laughs> anyway I, I just look forward to the you know the sweet rolls and the cranberry sauce and all the sides essentially i don't know growing up thanksgiving was a big family holiday obviously yeah i don't know it was good good times how about you don well, I've uh, I, I've mentioned before that I'm a vegetarian, so I also don't don't dig on the turkey. Um, but yeah, I'm a big fan of all the sides. You know, potatoes. Um, you know, I'll do the the stuffing. I got to make sure that they're you know that they don't put the the broth in it. But you know, I really like the the snacks beforehand. I like to make one of those. Um, you know, like I cut out the middle of a, a rye loaf and, and put dill dip in it. Uh, oh, I like that the one a lot. Yeah. Yes. And I, I I tend to drink a lot on Thanksgiving too, so <laughs> <laughs> just That's because you're so <laughs> you're so hungry. Everyone's yeah. eating their eating their meat, and you're like, <laughs> what you get I, your calories from somewhere. No, I I eat plenty, uh, and then of course you know dessert. I, I I love pie. Oh yeah, that's the star of Thanksgiving right there. Yeah, I never cared about the turkey as a kid, really. I mean, I wanted the drumstick just because I kings and stuff on movies hate the drumstick <laughs> like, and pull the giant, yeah, dramatically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, uh, that's it was Halloween kicked off that period of okay, here comes a thing every month. With and then I get time uh, off from school, and then I get gimme 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 day, which is 
also known as Christmas. So I loved family gatherings and the excitement of it and stuff. I can't stand family gatherings now because they're work. It's a same conversation over and over again. <laughs> How's work going? Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. And it's obligation. I don't like obligation. I can get together with people whenever. Why has it got to be on a certain day? And if it's not on that day, then I'm evil. But... <laughs> As a kid, the olives on the fingers, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I loved that part of it, the the lead up to the meal. What foods do you look forward to most? What's changed since you were a kid? Let us know. Albumnerds.com slash Discord. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right, for my opener and closer, talking about Nina Simone. And her 1965 album, Pastel Blues, the opening cut is Be My Husband. So, Pastel Blues is the eighth or so studio album for Inus Kathleen Wayman, singer, songwriter, pianist from Tyron, North Carolina. This album... It's a pretty interesting collection of songs. I'd say it's it's a little bit more stripped down than, than most of her most of her work. It's really just focused on on her and the piano and some minimal uh, percussion. Uh, my three words to describe it are Nina for newbies. <laughs> I think it is fairly accessible, and uh, you know, it really focuses on like her voice and like kind of this the vibe that she is giving off and. Man, it features a couple really awesome tracks, especially the opening closers. And, uh, you know, some pretty good stuff in the middle, too. What did you guys think about Pastel Blue? Well, my three words are thank you, Andy. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, just because this is this is another uh, one of those records that I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to uh, on my own. So, you know, fortunately, doing this podcast, you know, I get exposed to, to things I wouldn't have otherwise uh, gotten to. Uh, I had heard of uh, Nina Simone before. I know uh, people have you know cited her as influences, but I've just you know never gotten around to, to listening to her. And uh, yeah, it's it's great. You know, I mean, you have to just talk about her voice, and it's I mean, it's a beautiful voice, but I, it's it's less about the beauty, and I think it's it's more about the the emotional expression. I don't know. It just feels very sincere and natural, or you know, un unforced. You know, I, I think a lot of our our modern day R and B and soul singers, you know, they're they're trying to to capture you know this the you know this type of delivery. Yeah, it's a it's a great album. I also enjoy the the simplicity uh, of the the arrangements. Uh, and the treatment, you know, I mean, you're uh, apparently, you know, I mean, she seems to be kind of like a virtuoso pianist and you, you get a little taste of that uh, on this album. Uh, I haven't really listened to her other stuff, but I suspect that I would probably prefer this, you know, to a, you know, a bigger band setup. Yeah, I, uh, I agree on the uniqueness of the voice. Uh, so I described this album with the words jazzy, soulful and bluesy because it's kind of a jazz album it's kind of a soul album and it's kind of a blues album i mean that that song the intonation that is freaking bluesy as hell man it doesn't get more deep and so i found that really captivating i have listened to some of her stuff before um but you know it in some to some degree the piano playing and heartfelt delivery there are artists, like Don was talking about, trying to capture that. I feel like, you know, someone we talked about recently, Alicia Keys, although 
obviously more poppy. I've listened to a lot of her newer stuff since we talked about her on the show. And she touches on jazz and blues and soul. And so, you know, I, I appreciate the ability to weave those together and Nina did it beautifully. Yeah, it's funny. Their album's called Pastel Blues, but yeah, I would I would say this is probably more of a soul R&B record. She has a lot of just blues inherent in her voice. It's in her voice, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we play, I think, probably the most popular song on this record, or at least in terms of pop culture influence, comes towards the end. Uh, it's called Strange Fruit. Um, originally uh, sung by Billie Holiday. Uh, I think Nina here offers a pretty stirring rendition of the track. Hanging from the poplar trees Pastoral scene Chilling. I really like that part of her voice. I like it when she gets a little higher up there, a little more strain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of effort. It almost sounds like she's like pulling these vocals from herself in that song in particular. You can just almost hear like the, the anguish in her voice singing these lyrics on that track in particular. Yeah, I think she works best when she's at that register. I don't know. Have you guys heard Strange Fruit before? I know it was, it's been sampled a few times in the last couple of decades. I, I, you know, I know the Billie Holiday version. In fact, I just watched that movie recently about Billie Holiday. And so the Strange Fruit is a big part of the, uh, the narrative. So yeah. So I think Billie Holiday's version is like the definitive version. Simone doesn't deviate from it too far, but yet she still kind of makes it her own and really, I mean, just captures the, the sadness and darkness of that of that song. Yeah, I had not I had not heard Strange Fruit before uh, by any artist that I'm aware of. Okay, one so the closer on here I think is is really what I would call the stunner and kind of the sort of epic. It's hard to really get epic in the soul R and B space, but I feel like this this track here does it somehow. <laughs> uh, that is Sinner Man, which is kind of like a traditional. African spiritual, and they really turn it into a jazz epic. So let's hear a little bit of that. Awesome song. Slam dunk on the closer for this one. There's just, you know, beautiful, super active jazz piano and great drumming, too. Yeah. Yeah, the album as a whole, I don't know if I would hold it among her best. But as far as openers and closers, I think it is, like you said, a slam dunk and just kicks ass. Definitely worth hearing if you're not uh, super familiar with her. I do think it's a good place to jump in. She has a lot of great records from this this point of her career. She was really kicking some booty. So yeah, if you haven't heard Pastel Blues, Nina Simone, definitely worth uh, worth a listen. And now a word from our sponsor. Teen Spirit, the harder you play, the harder it works. Teen Spirit. Just for teen not that one. The other one. Us. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Are you a music fan? Love the album format? Want to share your amazing musical tastes? Join us on the Album Nerds Discord, albumnerds.com slash discord, to talk with like-minded nerds, suggest show topics, and find out what is coming next. Next, ladies and gentlemen, we have three fine young men from Seattle. They're thoroughly all right and decent fellows. Here they are, Nirvana! 
Oh, Nirvana, you had to make your way back onto the show at some point with only three studio albums. We've now covered two. <laughs> so, <laughs> one to go. But we had not talked about Nevermind, which is one of uh, my dad's favorite albums. Which is, really? <laughs> yep. When I was into this stuff in the 90s, he was not. It was like, that's noise. But somehow over you know, listening to satellite radio or whatever, he discovered it himself and went and bought Never mind himself and loves it. So wow. I don't need to get too much into who Nirvana, Nirvana were. Big band, Kurt Cobain, Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic. Why don't we jump in to the opening track, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Now I chose uh, towards the end of that song because... The denial part there at the end when Kurt is screaming it over and over again. I you if you I I watched a show where they isolated the vocals and you could tell it was something was about to blow. Like <laughs> 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 it just the passion behind the screams uh, that he did. I think is part of why people thought this was so special. The three words I used to describe this album are poetic, hooky, noise. It's there's hooks, there's melody, it's pop songs hidden behind this brash noise and screaming. And Kurt Cobain was a pretty sensitive dude and saw things in a weird way and wrote some pretty cool poetry that he found a way to make into songs and music. Did I bring it or did I bring it? <laughs> yeah, you really uh, dusted off a lost gem here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, I, I I believe I learned the word libido from this song. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's important. Yeah. So the the three words I used to describe this album were melody and mayhem. Uh, that's what's great about this album, right? Is it, it's hooky. You know, there's there's great melodies, but it's it, it's it's heavy and loud. Reflecting on it now, in my experience with the record when I was when I was young, I'm struck by how accessible it actually is. Um, as somebody at the time who you know wasn't drawn to to hard music at all, I mean, I liked this album, and I think it's just because all of it is so catchy. I wasn't frightened by the you know by the power chords and the the heaviness. I guess I also liked this album because it it sort of had a vibe that was sort of like the cure you know there's a there's a melancholy in there and a, and a darkness you know that i that i liked you know much more than than a lot of other heavy stuff that was going on at, at the time it's so uh, every time you bring up your love of melancholy and stuff you just as a as a <laughs> human being out in the world you do not put off that vibe dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no. that's so funny that's weird <laughs> Yeah, so my three words are grunge ventures out, uh, kind of meaning like this is sort of like, you know, grunge's foray into a larger world, or foray, is that the right word? Grunge is like uh, entrance to a larger world and kind of that crossover to uh, a bigger like pop audience. Yeah, it's a pretty accessible in hindsight, pretty easy listening for the most part. I mean, this comes from like this great songwriting and these really strong melodies they've created. And they, you know, they dirty them up a little bit just to fit in with the, the grunge vibe. But there's just some really strong chords or like structural members to these songs that I think hold up 
uh, especially if you listen to some of their acoustic recordings that would come out a little bit later. It's impressive to hear like these guys were really could play and had some really cool ideas. You know, I think oftentimes this record gets held up as sort of like a signpost or a cultural milestone for the 90s. And maybe it is that. But in terms of like an all-time great record, I think maybe it's a little overblown from that perspective. Uh, there's definitely some good stuff on here, but I think oftentimes people maybe exaggerate how groundbreaking or influent, well, even influential, I would say this record does. I, I kind of had the opposite. Like at the time, I wasn't super into it. I liked it. I mean, I liked what it kicked off and all the other bands it came with, you know, but the older I've gotten, and especially this exercise here, listening to it as many times as I did, probably 15 or 20, it's better. It's mo- It more fits into that category of incredible album for me now that I've really given it time uh, and watched documentaries and blah, blah, blah. But uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, a quote from, from Kurt was, I was trying to write the ultimate pop song, ripping off the Pixies, loud, you know, soft, loud, soft, loud sort of vibe, which they do throughout this album. So, uh, you know, his influences were uh, the Pixies and and bands like that, as well as the Beatles. And there's a, if you look at it from that perspective, lyrically, melodically, there is a lot of John Lennon-esque, that was his favorite Beatle, weirdness, you know, uh, experimentation. So anyway, In Bloom was the song that changed my mind about this album when it, uh, it was the fourth single, I believe. And so uh, why don't we uh, jump on that one? I liked the wink and the nod to, I mean, I know this song obviously was written before they blew up huge, but the whole idea of the people who are just in it for the what's cool and, you know, that don't really appreciate the art, but are just there for the ride. Mm-hmm. Um, I at the time, I I was like, okay, okay, okay. Like I had this sort of like anti Nirvana because Pearl Jam's better argument going on with people, <laughs> and this was the song that was like, I was like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll stop with that. I'll, I'll go listen to this record. So, <laughs> what about you guys? At the time, was this a part of? I mean, just was it just discovery of? Music's changing. MTV has changed. Where'd Poison go? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. For me, I didn't. I didn't discover this when it came out. It was really their next record that I was aware of culturally, and that had some other stuff wrapped up into it. So I don't know. How about you, Don? Were you were you old enough to appreciate this when it came out? Yeah, I mean, this is really you know I'm I'm entering my my teen years uh, when when this came out. So it was very you know it was very prominent. I suppose I didn't appreciate i guess the you know the changing because i was experiencing it like i i didn't recognize at the time that this was sort of a signpost or you know the, the time where alternative sort of took over the rock scene because you still had you know like guns and roses going and you know you, you had sort of the, the final gasp of of hair metal um happening at the same time so i, I think as you're experiencing it you know you, you don't realize it and when you when you look back at it you're like oh yeah that's when alternative uh rock took over and, and hair metal died. It was as fleeting as British Invasion was in terms of, you know, it It seems like it's going to be your life. And then after two or three years, it fades out and in comes the next thing. And so there's a lot of overdubbing, vocal tracking and stuff, harmony, so, you know, harmonizing with himself, 
Dave Grohl's voice is in there. Of course, Chris Novoselic, I don't think, gets enough credit as bass playing. Uh, yeah, he's great. Really awesome. It's great. Yeah, I think they said he uh, his bass was tuned down like a a step and a half or something to so like D flat, whatever, to to get that sound. Yeah, he did some really incredible stuff on here. If, if you're listening for it, other tracks on here that I think are incredible: Polly, which is super plain. One of the first things I was able to play on my guitar. You know, it's really easy, but it's about the actual kidnapping of a 14 year old girl in 1987 that Kurt had seen a news story about. And it's from the perspective of the kidnapper. It's pretty dark and messed up. That's one that I think is, I don't know if it's like aged poorly, but I know people, it comes up a lot. So in modern day, like people are, you know, kind of questioning. I don't, I don't know. I wonder if, if a song that came out in 2020, like how that would be yeah. received. Well, I think it was supposed to be uh, reminding people of the dark things that happen in the world. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like... Oh, yeah. Saying, like pretty cool, it. huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't get that impression at all. But, but uh, yeah, Polly is, is creepy. Lithium, it's about manic depression. Um, why don't we listen to the final track, discuss that a little bit, and then maybe talk about what's hidden beneath is a beautiful, haunting, and yet depressing, creepy song. This was <laughs> my favorite. Well, there you go. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> This one is called Something in the Way. Now, I know that this song inspired Andy's pescatarianism because it does say that fish don't have any feelings. I could be wrong, but have we just done disprove since then? <laughs> Don, does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. Well, I, I reject that idea. That's why I went <laughs> vegetarian completely. I love the, I don't know if that's viola or cello in it. I think it's cello. Yeah, yeah that's so powerful. I don't know if it's because, I guess, because both songs were kind of prominent or around the same time, but I, I always sort of think about it in tandem with Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I think maybe this, the theme is similar, you know, I, I, like a addiction and maybe being in a in a place where... You know, you're kind of lost and... Yeah, both songs are a little bit, maybe more, a little bit slowed down from their band's usual pace and aggression. There was, at the time, everyone said that it was about when Kurt Cobain was a starving artist and was homeless and that this was like his story. But that's since been rejected. He did, he was homeless and he slept in the hallway of friends' apartment buildings and, and things like that and crashed on couches it's like that young people kind of homeless where it's sort of by choice, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Cobain himself suggested that the song was not autobiographical. I guess he had a real hard time recording this. He tried over and over again in the studio, and then uh, Kurt went into the control room where the producer Butch Vig was, and he laid on the couch with his guitar, and he's like, yeah, I want it to be like this, and started playing really soft and singing way down here, you know? And so Butch mic'd them up and they recorded it right there <laughs> and uh cool. then the drums and bass had to be added and i guess because there's no click track it was a real challenge to get it all lined up but the performance was from the couch of the uh of the control room because getting getting it quiet enough getting it in that place of just like you can picture someone laying on their back just s- s- talking to themselves yeah. kind of so yeah totally so that song ends the album in a spectacularly tragically beautiful sad way right and then uh, if you have the original album and cd 
10 minutes later, another track starts, Endless Nameless, which is the opposite. It's noise jam session, right? If you're listening to this on a streaming service, you end the album with that feeling at the end of something in the way, and then immediately <laughs> you're clobbered <laughs> over the head with the super loud Endless Nameless. What do you guys think about that decision? I hate it. I, think, I mean, I love the idea that there's a hidden track, but I, I think it right. it needs to be it needs to be hidden, or you, you need that space, you know, where you're kind of forgetting, you know, where you're at the point, like, oh, did the you know did my player turn off or something, and that, and then all of a sudden you're startled by this this noise. Because to someone who's just discovering this album on a streaming service, they think that that's the last song of the album. That wasn't the intention. And plus, you know, people miss out on that cool thing where it's like, oh, there's a hidden track. If you wait long enough, there's an extra thing. Well, it, it's even now, I was listening to it on CD and it would, the album would end and I'd keep doing my thing. And then a couple, like 10 minutes later, rah, rah, I'm like, whoa. And that, I think, <laughs> that's was the, the intention, holiday, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's awesome because I, even though I know it's there, I move on and forget that I that the CD's still playing. In half alert, album nerds Hall of Fame nomination incoming. If we don't, we're what are we doing? Right. Yeah, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, this this made a huge shift in popular culture and in music, and then the album itself. As I said, I have come to really appreciate its elements, and hey, if my dad loves it <laughs> and discovered it on his own, I mean that says something. Oh, am I supposed to vote? Sorry. Vote it up, man. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, yeah, that's it, it's a it, definitely yes. Yeah. How do you uh, stand in the way? Ooh, that was the easiest one yet from Andy. No, no. Oh, well, he was a little pitchy on uh, a couple tracks. <laughs> I'll just say I look forward to reviewing Bleach at some point in the near future. If you haven't listened to it or haven't listened to it in a while, go listen to the newly inducted Ainhoff album, Nirvana Nevermind. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Hope we learned something today, fellas. Did we? Yeah, it's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> I was really surprised that we, we didn't end up doing like concept albums, you know, uh, and you would think that that format sort of lends itself to the, you know, the, the big open and, uh, and close. Yeah. As much as I'd like to say that that was, oh, well, I was saving that for the next time we talked about content, I, it didn't even dawn on me. Yeah. yeah, me either. I think I what I learned was that there may be a difference between al great albums and albums that have great opening and closing tracks. It, they aren't necessarily one and the same. I mean, you could have an album with two great songs on the front end, and the rest in the middle could be terrible enough to make you not even like it, right? Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's possible. And I did, I'd never really considered it that way. Uh, the other thing that kind of struck me just from doing this, we just touched on, was the uh, sort of like, how do you do hidden tracks in a streaming world? You know, like, is that even a thing anymore? I'm trying to think of like any recent albums I've heard that have had that component to them. Yeah, I think we wouldn't know. They're just bonus tracks or like... Yeah. You don't, when you use a streaming service, you don't, if you're new to the record, you don't know what the last song supposed to be from the right. original release or the, the, you know, maybe vinyl pressing or whatever. Yeah. They should be unnamed as well. So I, I think now, you know, the hidden tracks actually, the, the name is on the track list, which kind of spoils the, yeah. the fun. Yeah. It's fun. And we've kind of, we've kind of lost that, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, there's a will, there's a way. Hopefully we can figure it out and bring it back somehow. That's a good one to grow in right there. <laughs> And that's one to grow. I'm your 
density. I mean, your destiny. All right, Wadbot. Time for your big solo here. Get on out here and uh, give that wheel a spin. Your musical destiny will once again be taking you on a journey through time. You must explore albums from the year 1980. Oh, 1980. Fire up the flux capacitor, fellas. We had to make a Back to the Future reference. And yeah, there you go. 1980. Okay, what's your favorite album from 1980? To what else are you listening? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Album Nerds. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you once again for listening to the Album Nerds Podcast. Catch us next time when we travel to 1980. Thanks for listening. See ya. Good night and good luck. Good night and good luck. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> gosh. <laughs> <laughs>